This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Laden Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorj, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. This weekend on America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., we're delighted to welcome Michael J. Abramowitz, president of Freedom House based in Washington, D.C. He previously directed the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Levine Institute for Holocaust Education, prior to which he led the museum's genocide prevention efforts. He spent the first 24 years of his career at the Washington Post, where he was national editor and then White House correspondent. He is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he was formerly a Marshall Memorial Fellow at the German Marshall Fund and Media Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Welcome to America's Roundtable. A good morning to you, Michael. Welcome, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be with you. Freedom House is considered the oldest American organization devoted to the support and defense of democracy around the world. And it was formally established in New York in 1941 to engage America's citizens then steeped in the doldrums of isolationism. And it is hard to comprehend this statistic, but in 1949, a statistic relayed that 90% of American citizens were opposed to the involvement of America in the European war, even as Nazi tanks rolled across the continent and concentration camps begin to fill with people. And in 1973, Freedom House launched an initiative, a report known as Freedom in the World, which has been called the Michelin Guide to Democracy's Development. Michael, could you provide our engaged listeners with a brief overview of this important annual report and the goals of this endeavor? Well, thank you. And by the way, if I may just tell you a little bit more about the founding of Freedom House, because I think your listeners may uh, may find that interesting. So as you say, in 1941, when Freedom House was formed, many Americans were firmly against getting into the uh, what became World War II. And basically, Freedom House was founded by a group of very distinguished individuals across the political aisle. They included Eleanor Roosevelt, who was at the time the First Lady, and also Wendell Wilkie, who had run as a Republican for president in 1940, unsuccessfully against FDR. And I only mention this because I think one thing that you that people need to know about Freedom House is we are fiercely nonpartisan, and we work with people across the political aisle to try to advance freedom and democracy. That's really our mission. We work in a nonpartisan way, and we work with people of both major parties and independents and whoever uh, you know, believes in the fundamental uh, freedoms that we, uh, that we espouse at Freedom House. So Freedom in the World uh, started in 1973, as you said. We just celebrated our 50th birthday. And it really is, I like to say, the Michelin Guide for raiding countries uh, in terms of their freedom. The project really is an effort to measure the level of political rights and civil liberties that the individuals of a particular country and or territory enjoy. 
we've been doing this for basically 50 years. And we've looked, uh, we look at every country and territory in the world, about 200 or so. And we, and we provide a score on a score of zero to 100 with 100 being the freest and zero being, uh, the least free. And, uh, the, you know, the, the methodology has essentially been largely the same in 50 years, although it's gotten a little bit more rigorous, I would say, over and tighter in the last 15 or 20 years. But people really pay attention to this report. Uh, presidents of the United States, secretaries of states, the Congress, uh, people, to the extent that people know that we have a problem with uh, democracy around the world, they know it because of freedom in the world. Right. Michael, uh, over the last few decades, uh, we have observed erosion of the rule of law and rise of autocrats and kleptocrats around the world. And if we look at Eastern Europe, we will have spent massive amounts of taxpayers' dollars because of autocrat Putin Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We actually missed an opportunity after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Instead of using NATO expansion and EU enlargement in order to establish the rule of law, protection of property rights, and independent judiciary, including freedom of speech and independent media in respective countries, and NATO and EU discarded these key prerequisites for joining Western institutions. Uh, Michael, we have a number of countries in Eastern Europe today that do not qualify to be NATO or EU member countries, and their lack of rule of law and systemic corruption invite investments by Russian and Chinese tycoons and state-run entities which are exacerbating the kleptocracy of these lax law nations. So the vicious cycle continues, creating more rogue and mafia states. Uh, Michael, what tools do we have at our disposal to address these serious issues which undermine the rule of law and also political and civil uh, liberties? Natasha, it's a really great question, and there's a lot to unpack in what you just said. Let me just First of all, explain a little bit about freedom in the world and what we look at. So freedom in the world looks at two dozen indicators uh, that relate to political rights and civil liberties. And I think one of the key points that we'd like to make in freedom in the world is that having a healthy democracy means having free and fair elections, but it is not sufficient. You need other qualities. You need free expression. You need uh, freedom of the media. You need to have freedom of religion. And as you point out, it's really one thing that's really essential to a democratic society is having a rule of law in which everyone agrees to operate according to clear, public, collectively written rules and procedures that apply equally to all. And it's that rule of law that is really, I think, in danger in large parts of Eastern Europe. Uh, but I particularly need to start with Russia, because Russia, when after the demise of the Soviet Union in 1991, Russia seemed to be going in a, I would say not a perfect direction, but seemed to be going in a, in a good direction. Uh, it was according to Freedom House's Freedom of the World. It was a partly free society. Uh, it was not a free society in the way that we measure the United States or uh, other countries, but, but it was moving in a good direction. It was not unfree like many other countries. And really since Vladimir Putin, you know, took office, uh, in the year 2000, and really consolidated was essentially a dictatorship there in which there was complete absence of the rule of law, absence of free speech, absence of an independent media. Russia has gone to being, you know, one of the least free countries in the world. And that, and that problem has gotten even worse uh, after the invasion of Ukraine. 
I think what you also see is disappointing trends in other parts of Eastern Europe. The fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, you know, seemed to many that it was going to usher in a uh, the end of history, as as Frank Fukuyama once said, and that you know every country would essentially become a liberal democracy, and that did not happen. And I think what you've seen, according to Freedom House scores in recent years, is countries like two countries in particular, Hungary and Poland where there has been an erosion of some of the indicators that we look at at Freedom House. And so Hungary, for instance, has really had a crackdown on the independent media. Hungary is in worse shape than Poland. Uh, Poland has also had problems, but I think, you know, Hungary is an example of what even they themselves call to be an illiberal democracy, where there are elections, but there's not the kind of respect for rights and rule of law that, that really makes a thriving democracy. Uh, in fact, Michael, you've uh, rightfully mentioned this report that you did. In fact, uh, we've been following Freedom House's uh, various reports, and you had a specific report on media freedom uh, that you did on Hungary, Poland, and a number of countries. Because I think, as you've rightfully mentioned, uh, freedom of expression, media freedom are so vital in order to contribute to a robust democracy. And what we've seen in Hungary is uh, certainly very uh, disconcerting. And I think this also helps educate our fellow Americans and those in uh, Western Europe as well as to some of the challenges that are being faced on the European continent. And I'd like to just uh, segue to China and India for a moment. And I know that Natasha would like to delve back into Europe here. Uh, Over the past decade, the world's attention certainly has been shifting to Asia and specifically to the emerging powers, China and India, and each working through its own system and influencing the global arena. And one remains a strong communist state, exerting pressures on the rules-based order, and the latter a democracy with a vibrant entrepreneurial community. Now, China is considered not free in the Freedom House's 2023 Freedom of the World Report, And the findings on China state, and I quote very briefly, China's authoritarian regime has become increasingly repressive in recent years. The ruling Chinese Communist Party continues to tighten control over all aspects of life and governance, including the state bureaucracy, the media, online speech, religious practice, universities, businesses, and civil society associations. And Michael, uh, specifically connecting to China here, what can the West do in advancing democratic ideals and the significance of freedom when engaging with China on the trade front, uh, which it depends on for its growth, its economic growth? Well, this is really, Joel, one of the very challenging problems in the world right now. It's a subject of great debate in the U.S. Congress and Europe and so forth, you know, how to engage with an increasingly illiberal and really uh, dictatorial China. You know, when I was a reporter at the Washington Post, you know, one of the issues that that I had helped cover was the entrance of China into the World Trade Organization about 20 years ago. And if you recall, there was a lot of hope about China. China had been recovering from uh, from the Cultural Revolution. Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms had begun to take root. China was becoming a more open society, not a democracy by any stretch of the imagination, but one in which there was more lively civil society, some, you know, some outspokenness uh, by certain people. It was, it was moving in a more liberal direction. And I think the hope had been that when China 
was better integrated with the world uh, economy that this kind of liberalization would continue. And that obviously has not happened. Uh, I think one thing that I think is very interesting about China under President Xi Jinping is that a country that had had fairly poor respect for political rights and civil liberties had gotten even worse. So as I mentioned earlier, we score countries on a score of zero to 100. In 2014, China had a freedom in the world score of 17, which is still pretty low. And really, over the last nine years, it's declined by uh, almost 50% to the scores now nine. And that really reflects the increasing repression, the, the increasing state control, the, the increasing intolerance for any kind of dissent uh, that is coming from the, from the Chinese authorities, particularly President Xi. So that's a very deep concern. I think the options in the West uh, and in other countries are relatively limited, I think, right now. I think China's story is going to be told much by China, set by China itself. But I think the one piece of advice that I think we would always make to members of the business community or others is that they need to understand that, that there are risks inherent in, in investment in a country like China, which is really lacks the rule of law that Natasha was talking about. So we're deeply concerned about the trends in in China. In relation to India, we recently in the United States hosted Prime Minister Narendra Modi. He spoke uh, to members of Congress uh, and uh, the ties between India and the United States are certainly growing stronger. Yet uh, critics of India have noted that there are serious concerns uh, surfacing. And in fact, the 2023 Freedom of the World Report uh, brings to our attention key concerns. And I quote very briefly that the Constitution guarantees civil liberties, including freedom of expression and freedom of religion, but harassment of journalists, non-governmental organizations, and other government critics has increased significantly under Modi, unquote. From your perspective in observing India and as a Washington Post journalist and a White House correspondent, uh, what has been your observation of India? And as Natasha and I have been engaging, uh, for example, the Asian American community and the Indian American community, there's some 4 million Indian Americans that actually Prime Minister Modi has been courting over the years. Uh, what would be your message to them in how they can influence perhaps uh, the BJP party and Modi's government in addressing some of these concerns and perhaps strengthening the rule of law, which would, in effect, strengthen freedom of speech and other civil liberties? Well, look, first of all, I think as your as your good question indicates, Joel, this it's a complex, nuanced situation with India. So India clearly is a democracy. I think by all accounts, uh, Prime Minister Modi was freely elected several times. Uh, he's very popular in his country. And as you also, your question kind of indicates, there's a lot of dynamism in the Indian economy, which is to me different in some ways than China. I think that dynamism, that openness, the, the greater adherence to democratic values, I think augurs well for the long term for India. I think what you're seeing now in India, and I think it's a global phenomenon. I, I don't want to just pick on India per se, but I do think that India is an example where the government ha 
has had free elections, but the government has taken other steps sort of in between elections that could be seen as a an erosion of, of, of basic democratic practice. You know, under Modi and the BJP, there's been a significant decline in civil liberties and political rights. There's been crackdowns on the independent media. There's a shrinking space for civil society. And there's increased religious and ethnic discrimination and harassment. These are facts. It's uh, Freedom House has pointed this out in our reports, but other people have pointed this out as well. And I think that in the long term, unless India addresses those issues, that is that its prospects for success will be, I wouldn't say ended, but it's certainly, you know, it, it'll make it more difficult. And I do think that outsiders, especially in the United States, you know, they, they sort of have to take a fine line, uh, I think, in the, in this relationship with India. Uh, we're balancing, you know, both the need, for instance, to have India as a strong bulwark against China and also trying to encourage them to follow through on their commitment to hold democracy and human rights. I think I think whatever, every country is kind of responsible for themselves. And I think it's important for all of us to kind of stand up for our basic values, but understanding that different countries are going to perhaps be as not as open to outsiders telling them what to do. But I do think that it's important for the United States to speak clearly about its concerns about India. Yes, indeed. In fact, as Natasha and I travel, you know, through Eastern Europe or the Middle East or Asia and engage with some of these key political reformers, uh, political activists that are really focusing on the rule of law and freedoms uh, in their respective countries, we've come to realize how important these global indices are, uh, indices uh, like what the Freedom House has been promoting and uh, working on because it gives them a sense of material, not just only material, but that moral clarity uh, to share, to help educate others in their respective sovereign states and to uh, certainly advance some of these key reforms based upon these reports. And I think from our perspective, it is so important to have these key reports such as that, which the Freedom House and other groups are pointing out, uh, which also empowers these key political reformers and other activists as well. Now, I think it's a very good point. And one point that occurs to me uh, as I listen to your comments, Joel, is that one thing that's very important for people to understand about the Freedom of the World Report is that we have very rigorous standards. The indicators, you know, are inspired by the UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which all countries in the world have signed on to. And I think also it's important to say that we do not just point the finger at other countries. You know, we're a U.S.-based NGO, but we also look at freedom in the United States. And we have been, at times over the last 80 years, very critical uh, of trends in the United States. So I find from time to time, people will come to me and say, well, you know, why is the United States so arrogant? You're pointing out, you know, well, first of all, we're not the U.S. government. But the second point I would say is that we look at every country by the same standards and and we work with people around the world uh, in, in these countries themselves to help us come up with these assessments. So I think that's really important kind of context for your listeners to understand. Right. Uh, Michael, uh, Joel, Alan, Sami and I recall a conversation with Nobel laureate in, in economics, Milton Friedman, uh, then senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, along with his brilliant spouse, Rose Friedman, on the eve of launching the International Leaders Summit. And Friedman said when we met at his residence in San Francisco that after the fall of the Berlin Wall, he was often asked, 
What do these ex-communist states have to do in order to become market economists? And his quick response was, you can describe that in three words, privatize, privatize, privatize. But I was wrong. That wasn't enough. We did not realize that these countries steeped in communism did not have the rule of law and protection of property rights. I should have said the rule of law, the rule of law, and the rule of law. <laughs> so we took it yeah, we took it for granted, basically, that there is rule of law, that there is protection of property rights. But Russia morphed from communist state to a kleptocratic regime, which we all see, and a number of Eastern European countries, including EU and NATO members, still remain mired in corruption due to weak rule of law. And, you know, in a great number of Eastern European nations, restitution of property to the Jewish community has been a major challenge, with certain nations enforcing anti-Semitic laws for the return of private property confiscated during World War II. And in light of these serious challenges, which affect the vast majority of people in Eastern Europe's weak rule of law states, do you think that private and public institutions in the U.S., and specifically the Helsinki Commission or any other institution, can do more in holding to account the backsliding on the rule of law and freedoms in these reform-laggard nations? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, what comes to mind, Natasha, in listening to your question is the fact that we cannot take democracy for granted. You know, when I started at Freedom House, which is roughly seven years ago, I kind of thought that the virtues of democracy were going to be self-evident, right? That people understood that why it's important to have free elections, why it's important to have the rule of law, why it's important to have free expression, why it's important to have freedom of religion, why it's important to have these, you know, these different rights and liberties that we outline in our in our report. And I found that we have to really make the case again and again, right, of why these freedoms matter, why democracy matter. Why does democracy matter? It's because it's the only system of government that protects freedom. It's, it, it's, a kind of, it's the only system of government that, you know, will guarantee, not guarantee might be too strong, but will make it more likely for countries to be prosperous and peaceful. I really do believe that. And so I think that we have to kind of make that case again and again. And I do think that you know, multilateral bodies like the European Union, uh, the United Nations, and the big democracies have to rededicate themselves to uh, trying to hold up, you know, really try to guarantee these basic ideas and principles. I think this mm -hmm. is, is, is as simple as that, or as complicated as that, as a, as a case may be. Right. You know, Michael, we are sending U.S. taxpayers, EU member countries taxpayers are still sending you know, significant amounts of funding to lax law nations. And we do have these tools at disposal to block our U.S. taxpayers funding, for example, from reaching corrupt governments because we are funding them via the you know, World Bank, EBRD, which we also provide funds to, IMF, USAID, and other institutions. Why don't we install like verified mechanisms to prove that the democratic progress has been made before we release additional funds? Well, look, I, I think you're raising a very good point and that we have to be more aggressive in requiring countries to uh, meet certain standards before they uh, to get their money. You know, one, I think one model potentially, Natasha, is a Millennium Challenge Corporation. Mm. You know, the Millennium Challenge Corporation 
uh, was set up under the Bush administration to provide major grants to developing countries. But to qualify for those grants, the countries had to meet, frankly, certain scores in the Freedom House scores, mm. you know, on the governance side. And if they did not meet those standards, they were not going to qualify for aid. I think that I think that would be the kind of approach that I think we should be considering more. I'm I'm struck that in the European Union, they continue to uh, provide enormous funding for Hungary, even though Hungary has uh, been deemed to be violating European rules in, in certain areas. Right. So I think mm -hmm. this is something that we have to consider more seriously. Mm -hmm. Right. And Michael, the worst case scenario of the lack of the rule of law is actually wars that we also experience here in the Balkans. And especially now when it comes to security, we have to pay attention to the Balkans because Balkan government officials have long exploited ethnic tensions for personal gain. If we just remember the Balkan wars of the 90s. So the Balkans, including the EU member country Croatia, have a growing influx of Russia's and China's investments. And the recent Freedom House's report on Croatia stated that corruption in the public sector remains a serious problem. Yes. Last month, the Financial Action Task Force, which is international finance crime watchdog that tackles money laundering, terrorist and proliferation financing, added NATO member state Croatia to its so-called gray list of countries under special scrutiny. And the move makes Croatia the only EU member country on the list. Uh, so, Michael, NATO Charter defined that the NATO member countries are the rule of law countries. Shouldn't we use also NATO to re-evaluate member countries based on the rule of law criteria, using also Freedom House's indices uh, to actually incentivize the striving for improvement rather than backsliding once a country is part of a club, such as NATO club? Look, personally, Natasha, you're speaking, to, you're pushing on an open door with me. I think that's an interesting idea that should be considered. The problem with NATO, as we've seen with the um, efforts to bring uh, Finland and Sweden into the alliance over the last several months, uh, is that it operates on consensus, and you have within NATO certain countries, particularly Turkey, which do not really mm -hmm. adhere to uh, right. the the kind of the, the standards of the other countries with respect to these issues. And so it's it's a balancing act. You uh, you know they, you, you, they've never booted a country out of the out of NATO. I'm not sure that would be a good idea. So you're in this situation where you have to negotiate with countries like uh, Turkey uh, to enlarge the alliance. And so I think that's the challenge that we're facing. Right. right. And in this final question, uh, Michael, and we truly do appreciate your time joining us on America's Roundtable, we engage our enlightened and engaged listeners to also send in their questions. So we shared with them that you would be on our program and we got one of these questions that we'd like to share with you. Sure. And I'll just read this out to you. From your vantage point, looking past Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what will be the biggest threat to democracy and human rights in the foreseeable future? Well, I think that's a straightforward answer. I think it's China. I think I think if you look at China and the developments there, they're of great concern. China, I think one thing that has been a feature of the Freedom House reporting on China over the last, say, five years is that China has been increasingly been willing to not just repress its own people, but to 
look beyond their borders to undermine democratic institutions like the Human Rights Council in uh, Geneva, which has uh, become much weaker, I think, because of the presence of China and other autocrats. China is also one of the leading perpetrators of what we've called at Freedom House to be transnational repression, right. which is the propensity of authoritarian countries to really target their critics and their enemies and their opponents who are living in the diaspora. You think about the Uyghur population that is living in the United States or in other countries. They're under deep surveillance by the Chinese. The Chinese have been willing to kidnap people who have been uh, working and living in other countries, uh, the bookseller from Hong Kong. So I'm deeply concerned about China. And I think it's really important for the world to kind of recognize that. Right. I mean, the audacity to establish police station in New York City. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. We really appreciate your principal leadership and the work that you are undertaking at the Freedom House. And we'd encourage our listeners to certainly seek out a Freedom House on the internet and visit their website and also learn more about the various reports uh, that they publish on a regular basis, which uh, really helps us understand better the importance and significance of freedom of speech, our civil liberties, our political liberties. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Michael Abramovitz, it's the president of Freedom House based in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with your listeners. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Ladensami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. 